Now, uh, the last time we were in Luke 16, Jesus was speaking directly to his disciples. So we're going to be in Luke 16 at verse 9. So uh, this is back two weeks ago, and we're, uh, we're on a very strange verse here. Make, make of yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. And I, if you recall, I'm sure you do, uh, that it's an Aramaic word. And mammon is just another word for money. It often has an implication of evil, but not always. It could just be money. Uh, Jesus said unrighteous mammon uh, in that order of words. And I, I don't know if you can say money is always bad, but this was after the, the parable of the uh, unjust steward who used uh, his position to, to win friends. He, he manipulated the debts to where people would befriend him and owe him rather than owing the, uh, his boss when he got fired. And Jesus complimented that, that guy and turned to the disciples and said to us, make, friend, make yourself friends of the mammon of unrighteousness when it fails they may receive you into everlasting habitations. And there's, that's one of, of two or perhaps three very complicated statements of Jesus in chapter 16. Even four if you get hung up on the compartmentalized view of heaven and hell. Uh, now, the New Living Translation, which I know will raise the hackles on some of you, it's uh, one step better than the the Living Bible, and probably eight steps down from uh, an actual translation. He writes, uh, here's the lesson. This is the New Living Translation. Uh, Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. And then, when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. Now, as much as I'm a little uncomfortable using the New Living Translation, they, they really nailed the understanding of that verse well, at least based on the three or four commentators that I read on the subject. They all agreed that that is the right translation or the right interpretation. You know, the New International Version, which Linda seems to be made friends with lately, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed in it, into eternal dwellings. Yeah, okay, that's pretty much what it says, but none of us makes real sense. I'm going to use my money to buy friends. You know, it's not, something's just not feeling right here. Now, there is a Bible translation called The Voice, and I like the way they interpret it. You, you know, there's hundreds of translations of these verses. This is The Voice. Learn some lessons. This is supposed to be Jesus talking based on their interpretation or translation of the Greek words that Jesus spoke. Learn some lessons from this crooked but clever assistant manager. Realize that the purpose of money is to strengthen friendships, to provide opportunities for being generous and kind. Eventually, the money will be useless to you, but if you use it generously to serve others, you will be welcomed joyfully into your eternal destination. Now, however you translate, that's, that's really pretty cool. Oh. I'm sorry, I'm not keeping up with the work here. Uh, no, no, I am keeping up. Good, good. I thought I had all that that I read to you on this slide, but I don't. So, uh, whatever this verse is saying about money, is it's warning us, the disciples, first of all, that money 
can tend to unrighteousness. It can get us in trouble. And secondly, we must learn to use it wisely. So as much as you want to play around with the interpretation or the translation of that, uh, that's pretty much the message. God cares about how we handle our money. And, you know, a, a number of preachers will use this verse as an opportunity to say it's important that we put the things that, val- that are of value to us, pass it on into the future. Put it, put it in heaven, as Jesus said, where moth and rust can't corrupt. Uh, and it is possible, you can't take it with you, but it is possible to send it ahead. So it, it's important that we think about the assets that God has given us and use them in a way that God instructs us not for our own good. Uh, and then Jesus goes on on the subject of money. I know you love a review. My kids always did in high school. Uh, in Luke 16, 10, He that is faithful in that which is least, which of course in this context is money, is also faithful in that which is must, much, which of course is spiritual things. So the money is the least. And when you think about it, the only value to money, the only value to money is what we value it as. I mean, we could actually use mud cakes. If we valued mud cakes, you know, we could trade in mud cakes or like other cultures did in, in shells or in beads. Or we can make anything we want to be valuable if we all agree that it's valuable. You know, I, I'll, I'll fill up my tank and give you a bucket of sand and you'll accept that. It, it's really money isn't, there is no value in the money except for what we give it. So, and, and what Jesus is saying is that if we're not faithful in the things that are of no importance, money, then how in the world is he going to trust us with things that really matter? And then he adds this, if therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you, to your trust, true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, Who will give you that which is your own? Powerful lesson about the handling of money. We've received Jesus Christ as our Savior, but also as our Lord. And in making Him our Lord, we have have, uh, put all our property at His disposal. Everything we quote-unquote own, we have now put at His disposal. He is our Lord. He is our boss. And it's vital that we learn to handle our assets in a way that's pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't like the concept of buying friends so that they'll applaud when I arrive in heaven. That, that, I don't like even the sense of that. But the truth is, if you've supported missionaries or been a missionary yourself, or you have sent out these Christmas tree boxes, the day will come or, or you're a soul winner. You've won people to the Lord. Or you've supported. We've had college students in here that, are, that have uh, gone into the ministry and you've supported them financially and prayerfully and encouraged them or even said one encouraging word to them and they've gone out and won others to the Lord. You'll meet people in heaven that you had a hand in their salvation. That's the kind of riches that I think Jesus is talking about here. It's using all of our resources, our time, our talents, and our money to win people to the Lord and to encourage others uh, that are doing the same, you know. So that's what I think Jesus is talking about. Now, it kind of sounds like there's no more ownership of private property, you know. And I, I know the uh, 
the liberals would like to think that uh, that's true, but it's not true. You have to understand the Lord recognizes the private ownership of our own property. It is yours, you know. When when you read Exodus twenty fifteen and 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 the Bible, uh, the Ten Commandments, I, is it the Eighth Commandment? Says thou shalt not steal. Uh, the law is teaching us to respect the rights and property of others. It's your property. If it wasn't their property, then you'd have a right to use it. The fact that you're stealing it, and you know, that was a big issue when they first came up with the idea of taxes in this country. They felt that it was wrong to take somebody else's money and give it to someone else. And that's been an ongoing fight in Congress ever since the turn of the last century. I mean, they've been arguing over this for 120 years. Um, and in addition, you'll recall the story of Ananias and Sapphira when Ananias sold some land and came in and he said, he said that he gave all, he sold the land for, you know, $500. He, he didn't give a number, but he said he sold the land for a certain amount of money and he was given that certain amount of money for the support of others. And, and the thing that Peter took offense at was not that Ananias sold the land and brought this money in, but that he lied about how much he sold the land for. He kept back a portion of it for himself. And then he lied about saying this was all of us. And now notice what Peter says about this. You, know, you have a right to the ownership of property. While it remained, this is Peter speaking to Ananias, did not it remain in thy bones? And after it was sold, was it not in thy power? It was your land, and when you sold it, it was your money. Why, why would you feel the need to lie about it? How is it that thou hast conceived this thing in thy heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. So Ananias said, yeah, I sold it. I sold the land for $1,000. He sold it for 1500 kept back 500 said this was it. He wanted the praise of man. He violated the first commandment because he was putting the praise of men above God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And that's what this chapter is about. This chapter is about idols that we have that separate us from the Father. And that's what the last chapter was about, by the way. And I hope, I hope I'll be cognizant enough to sum it up that way. But you recall there was one son that wanted dad's money, wanted to go off and go party, and had another son that resented the dad and was hanging around, but he was only hanging around for security. It wasn't because he loved the dad. We're talking about the prodigal son. And you know that he didn't love the father because if he really loved the father, he would have been happy that his father was happy when the younger son came home. See? So you, you know he didn't love the father. So you got two boys here. Now, I don't want to get too tied up into that, but you can do a lot with that meditating on the parable of the prodigal son and especially the prodigal brother. And you can spend some time thinking about that. It's worth your time. But there's a spiritual principle involved here that I want to share with you before we get into the actual, whether you call it a parable or a story, uh, some argue it's not a parable at all, but there's a spiritual principle involved and it's one that we often forget. Now Jesus, I, we're going to actually read this verse twice. No servant can serve two masters. Now he's talking to his disciple. No servant, he's not talking to the crowd, he's talking to us. People that are born again, people that are following him, his disciples in the circle. Now, the Pharisees are all standing around listening. And as soon as they get involved, Jesus always tells another story. So, I mean, he tries to say, teach his disciples one thing. Then they interrupt and then he ends up telling them another, which is the pattern that he's followed, at least for the last three or four chapters. So Jesus has no servant speaking to us. 
can serve two masters, for either hate the one and love the other, or else you'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. you got to make up your mind who you're going to serve. You know, we have this problem. We want our kids to go to college and, you know, get a good education, make a, make a lot of money, you know, and, and marry someone and have children and a nice home and a nice retirement. And that, that's, that's kind of our American dream, isn't it? You know, but it may not be God's dream. You know, and if you're not careful, you end up worried more about how much money you have in your retirement account than you have, what am I going to do with my life before God? Because one day you're going to stand before God. I heard a guy this morning, just interestingly enough, on Facebook, he was talking about people that retire, early retire, and they go down to Florida, and they're 50 years old, and they spend the rest of their lives just you know playing golf and uh, collecting seashells on the beach. And he said, what are they going to say to God? You know, they're going to die and they're going to stand in the presence of God. And they're going to say, uh, look at my shell collection. Huh? You know. I, I can't go up there and say, look at the varnish on my boat. I, it's really looking good, isn't it? You know, it's an old boat, but it looks really good. You know, that, That's not what our lives are about. That's, that's the point. You've got to make up your mind who we're serving. It isn't that you can't have these other things. And it isn't that you don't own them. But you own them as a steward. They belong to God. And we have to be conscious of what we do with our lives. Or, or one day we'll stand before God with no explanation at all about what we've done in the last 40 years. What have you done in the last 40 years, Bob? Uh, of course, in my state in life, I can't even remember anyway. I hope somebody's writing it down. Uh, but uh, you get the point. Now, Norman Grubb, I'm sure it's a theologian many of you have not heard of. Always makes a statement, what you take takes you. And one of the best illustrations, Dr. Dobson talks about the swing set, and I know I've probably gone over it five times and probably remembered where he spent the whole weekend putting together a swing set for his son when his little boy was little. And, you know, he's a doctor, so he followed every line. You know, he starts on page one. You know, carpenters don't do that. They just say, oh, that fits here, and that fits here, and that fits here. Oh, I wonder where that goes. Oh, we don't need that. And, you know, that's the way carpenters are. But Dr. Dobson is going, you know, bolt A goes in the whole C, and, you know, this washer goes on. Every step, spent the whole weekend putting that thing together. Got all the way down to page 47 on how to put the swing set together. And the last thing was, uh, now every, I think it was once a month, every month or every week, every weekend, go over each bolt to make sure they're tight or something like that. And he goes, oh my God, I wish I'd have read that first. I'd have never put this thing together. He said, you know, this swing set now owns every weekend that I have. And I go, this is not right, but what you take takes you. So be careful about what you take. That's true with anything. You know, that's true with hockey. That's true with uh, baseball. That's true with sailboats. It's true with fishing. Be careful what you give yourself to because it ends up owning you. Uh, that's the point. What you take takes you. So the Pharisees believed that, I'm going to go back to this new, this verse that we already had, no servant can serve two masters, for either hate the one or love the other. The Pharisees believed their mindset was that when we're right with God, if you are right with God, if I'm right with God, I will have money, I will have possessions, I will have power and prosperity. To be right with God is to prosper. Now, that is true, but not in the way they thought it. They thought that we would have these blessings, and the, the possession of all these blessings was proof that we're blessed by God. And that's partly true. And it's not too far from what you hear people preaching today. 
But the problem is the spiritual principle that in order to love something, we must give ourselves to it. It's the very definition of love. So whether we're talking about football or hunting or work or our wives or our family, it's talking about we're giving a piece of our lives to those things because what we take takes us. What we own owns us. Now, if we have truly given ourselves over to Jesus as our Lord, and if he has truly received us, we have a new master. We, we can't just go out and spend our money, buy our things, worry about our retirement accounts without taking his will into consideration. Certainly homes or sailboats, the repeating theme there, sailboats, or bank accounts cannot, they must not get between us and the Lord. They must not. I must not let that sailboat become so important that I don't take the Lord's will in my life in consideration. To surrender to his lordship is to recognize his authority over everything that we own. And we must be careful that we handle it because if we love something enough to steal, that thing has become our idol and our master. If we love recognition of others enough to lie about something, as Ananias did, that recognition has become our idol. It is our master. I become a slave to that thing which I love, which is other people's praise, you see. I want recognition. I want praise. I want to be famous. I want this. I want that. You're trying to substitute your place for God, trying to take over the throne. If it is fame that drives us, then what others think has become our idol. And we've supplanted God with something else. And God wants us to worship no other gods but he himself. So Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot. Now, now so you got a picture. Jesus has got a circle of disciples around him. He's probably sitting down. They're probably all standing up. That was pretty much the tradition in those days. And they're all standing up. And around them was all the disciples and all the people. And they're all craving in, trying to hear. And in all likelihood, people are coming and going and there's talking in the background, you know. And and there's probably some kids running around. I mean, it wasn't the, the formal type of, of worship that we have here today. They were, Jesus was probably sitting on a rock, you know. I don't know that. but And then verse 14 says, And the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they scoffed at him. I love that sentence. I love that verse. I love that verse. You know, they're scoffing at the author of the Ten Commandments. You think about that. You know, Linda asked me, uh, was it driving in or at home? She said she was talking about trying to explain to the kids how in the world it is that Jesus could be God. Well, the disciples had a little trouble with that. The Pharisees had a lot of trouble with it. Jews today cannot accept Jesus because they cannot believe that he's God. And the answer to her question was answered by the Philippians passage that she read. He emptied himself of himself. He, he took off his robes of glory and set, it, set his robes aside and set his power aside, but he was God in the flesh. I can't explain that. No one really can, except he claimed it and he proved it by his actions. I mean, that's really the point, but scoffing at the author of the 10th commandment. Do I have it here? I think I do. Okay. 
The tenth commandment is thou shalt not covet. And yet the Pharisees were covetous. Paul explained that his biggest problem in life was his own covetousness. You know, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor the manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is their neighbor's. Now, one of the reasons that is, is you look at his stuff and you think, well, I wish I had that. You know, I wish I had a bigger boat or a boy, I see, I see a nice, you know, power boat go by and I think, wow, maybe I should get rid of my boat and get that. When you do that, when you do that, you're saying, God, what you've provided for me isn't good enough. You want his house. My house isn't good enough. You want his wife. My wife isn't good enough. You want his ox or his donkey. Not good enough. See, ox is really a, a John Deere tractor and a donkey is a zero-turn lawnmower. All right. So, if you're coveting that that tractor or that zero-turn lawnmower that your neighbor has, and my neighbor, by the way, just bought a brand new lawnmower, uh, zero-turn. Man, that thing sounds like a freight train going by. I don't. It must be a 700 horsepower zero-turn or something. But I think, wow, that would be cool. You know. You know what I'm saying, God? I don't like that Cub Cadet that you provided for me. You can't get away from that. You're either going to love God and serve God, or you're going to love these things and serve those things. Well, am I at the right point here? And he said unto them, Ye are they that just so... <laughs> Another interruption, right? They, they probably barely made a noise, but Jesus is very sensitive to both what they're thinking and what they're doing. They probably just rolled their eyes and went, Oh, right, yeah. You know, when he said, you know, you can't serve God in money. They they felt like their service of money was their worship of God. I mean, that, that's just the way it was. In fact, in a lot of Christianity, that's just the way it is. Our love of money is our love of God. You know, We measure our spirituality by how much money we have. So that's the reason for this quote-unquote parable of this story. So he turns on them, and, and I, I, I honestly... Don't know what happened, but I kind of feel like he's a little irked. And he says to them, all right, so there, the inner circle is the disciples. Just beyond them, he raises up his head and he looks beyond El Scapo out there. And he said, you're are they that justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts. For that which is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Well, they must have hated that, right? You know. The Pharisees lived for the praise of man, not God. They were more interested in impressions than in realities. But what others think of us is a dangerous trap that we must avoid. How I look to others, what they think, without regard to God's will, is a trap that we can all fall into if we're not careful. It doesn't matter how well the neighbors decorated their house for Christmas. See? What matters is, am I expressing my love for God? Now they fit, these Pharisees fit Paul's description of the church in the end times, and I'm going to share that with you, even though it's not part of this message. Paul, uh, come on, picky, go picky. Did I skip that? I guess not. I hope not. I hope I did this right. I've been over it three times. I hope I did it right. 
So Paul writes to Timothy, this know also that in the last days, and the last days really began with the resurrection of Jesus. So it's characteristic of the times. It was true in the 1800s. It was true in the 1500s. It was true, and it's ever more so true today. This know in the last days, dangerous, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Being a child of the 60s, I think, man, if Paul wrote that for me, Without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent. Now, not incontinent in the way we use the word, but incontinent in the sense that you cannot be placated. You're angry, and no matter what people say to you, you will not give up your anger. Fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. That, that's a terrible description of our day to day. But the thing that always stood out to me, even as a brand new Christian, was verse 5. Having the form, the morphe, the external image, the appearance of godliness. Talking to a Pharisee now. But denying the exousia, not the dunamis power. Dunamis power is the ability to do something. The exousia is the authority, denying the authority thereof. You know, the authority of God in this context that we're studying today. From such turn away. Now Jesus says to these Pharisees two verses which are very uncomfortable, and I really debated skipping them. He said, The law and the prophets were until John. From that time the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached, and every man enter violently into it. And you think, what does that mean? And I don't have an explanation for you, except to say to you, at the time that Jesus is speaking, through those two centuries, three centuries of law, 3,000 years of law, men have heard the law and have attempted by their own good works to work or wean or wiggle their way into heaven by doing more good than bad. Very much true in religions today. You know, so that's the idea of press into heaven by their good works, by force. I'm worthy. I need to get in here. Ignoring God's law. All right. So I believe that's a safe interpretation of that passage. I don't know that. And believe me, everyone has trouble with this verse. Jesus also is quoted in Matthew as saying the same word. And then he says, looking at this scoffing Pharisee, right, you got to keep this in context, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away for than one tittle of the law to fail. The law will stand. All Ten Commandments will stand. Regardless of Jesus coming and dying for his sin, the Ten Commandments are still the absolute fundamental truth of God. The, the, the advantage to Jesus is having failed at keeping the law, Jesus has taken our sin upon himself and in his own body suffered our penalty so that he, through his resurrection life, can fulfill the law in us who walk not after the law, Paul said in Romans. And then he says in verse 18, and I think he's speaking to a specific Pharisee, an eye-rolling Pharisee, and he says, everyone that puts away his wife and marries another committeth adultery. He that married one that is put away from a husband committeth adultery. And think, what has that got to do with the context? I think the context is he looked at that Pharisee and quoted a commandment to him and said, shut up. You know, I know your heart. 
I know what you're thinking about doing tomorrow. I know what your plans are. You have to understand that the law still stands even for you, Pharisee. All right? For all of us. And you know, he goes on, I mean, Paul goes on and says, to offend the law at one point is to be guilty of all. We're all lawbreakers. Without Christ, we have no hope in the world. But this guy's hoping through his own good works to force his way into heaven. See the context in there? He's hoping he'll do good works. And then we get the story here. Now the point that Jesus is making is, buddy, you need to deal with the sin in your own life. You need to stop redefining sin in a way to make yourself look good to others and think that somehow that's going to work with God, that somehow your apparent good works are going to cover up all the evil that's deep in your heart. It's not going to work. There's no lying before God. He knows our hearts. This is why Jesus came. He came to wash away our sins with his own blood. And that's what it says about the saints in the tribulation times. These are they that have washed their sin, washed away their sins in Jesus' own blood. That's our only hope. If I make it to heaven, it won't be because I had never violated the law. If I make it to heaven, it won't be because of my good works. It won't be because I, I preached X number of sermons or witnessed 42 times or what, whatever it is or gave so many, so much money to the church or to God's causes. If I make heaven, and I will, it'll be because Jesus died for me. That's the only hope I have. The only hope I have. I'll guarantee you my wrong will outdo my right every day of the week. But the hope I have, our hope, is that Jesus took our sin to Calvary. And our hope is that Jesus died for me. So if they ask me, and they won't, why should you get in here? My only answer is Jesus died for me. Jesus took my sins upon him. So then he tells a story. Now he's speaking. To, again, we're talking to a Pharisee now. How does that green show up? Ah, that's weird. Green shows up better than dark gray, David. I don't understand that. Now and he tells a story. Now there are people that will argue that because the name Lazarus is there, this is a true story. This really happened, and he chooses not to name the rich man because everybody would know him. There are others who say, no, this is a parable. I don't care. It doesn't matter. But it does smack of a true story to me. Uh, and it's very complicated. There was a certain rich man, and, he, and I'm not going to try to avoid the complexities. And he was clothed in purple and fine linen, faring sumptuously every day. Doesn't that sound great? In the mind of a Pharisee and many who call ourselves Christian, this man is experiencing the full blessings of God for his good works and fine character. Many think he's getting what he deserved from God, that he's fully blessed, that this man, we would say, is a good Christian. We can tell by the way God's blessed him. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus laid at his gates full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Yea, even the dogs came to lick them. Now, what did Jesus say in the beginning? How do we get our money to move on ahead of us? We take some of our riches and we share it with this poor guy, see? And we help him out. That's how we pass the money on before us. So that when this guy's dead and then the rich guy dies, the rich man will be clapping his hands. I'm sorry, the beggar will be clapping his hands and saying, thank you for taking care of me while I couldn't take care of myself. So that's that's whole the idea of the passage, see? So we're, we're still in the same story. We're just telling it to a Pharisee. Are you with me? 
In the eyes of many, however, this man is cursed because he's poor. He's lazy. He's sick probably because he's stuck on drugs. Worthless. He's homeless. He got what he deserved. Condition of his own making. It's probably his own bad choices. Go on, Clicky. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried away by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Now, Abraham's bosom to a Jew is synonymous with paradise. Depending on your theological bent, we would call that heaven. Uh, there are those that believe in a two-compartmentalized view that prior to the resurrection, the saints, the, the saved, were not carried into the presence of God until Jesus died. I, I, I subscribe to that position. And that these two compartmentalized view, one is paradise and one is Hades, and they could look across and see each other, but they, they couldn't. They obviously couldn't cross. Others say not so. That we're talking in a spiritual realm where the people in hell can in fact see the people in heaven. I don't care. I don't know. I don't care. It really doesn't matter how you define it. At least not for the purpose of this message to me. We would just say he died and went to heaven. See? And the rich man also died. Probably had a lot fancier funeral service. And in Hades... He lifted up his eyes, being in torments. People say, Jesus never said there was flames in hell. Well, what's he say here? And he seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus. <laughs> you got to love this. This rich guy still thinks he's in charge. Doesn't he? Oh, send Lazarus to get me some water. Fetch me some water. You know, <laughs> come on, dude. You're in hell. He's in heaven. What are you thinking? You know? Have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that may dip his tip of finger in water and cool my tongue so I'm in anguish in these flames. Now what's the Pharisee thinking? Wait a minute. The rich guy went to hell and the beggar went to heaven? There's something seriously wrong with this preacher. But that's the truth. It doesn't matter how much money you have. What matters is who you know and who knows you. More importantly, who died for you. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus they may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in these flames. Well, Abraham's son said, Son, rememberest that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are in anguish. You had it all. A nice home, abundant wealth. You fared sumptuously, the Bible says, with all the good things God blessed you with. You never came <coughs> to recognize the love of God who has blessed you all these many years. You thought it was all about you. Your covetousness had blinded your eyes from the truth of your own lostness. Your riches were a curse, not a blessing. You ever thought about that? This spring when I was sanding the bottom of my boat and got stuck and tried to get out and slipped the disc and I was in pain. I couldn't do anything for a month. I started to wonder about what a blessing that boat was or not. You know, If you're not careful, your blessings can become a curse. Comfort and wealth had become a stumbling block to this man and he stumbled over it. The difference is when he stumbled, it was too late. He stumbled and fell and there was no recovery because he had no time. He only realized he'd stumbled after he was dead. You can't wait too long. You can't be assured that that truth will always be available to you or salvation will always be available to you. 
You could step out the door and be hit by a bus. You just don't know what the future holds. You have to take what you know now and act upon it. Lazarus was sick and homeless and poor. Yes, but it forced him to be dependent on God. And as God provided for his needs, in that poverty he learned to be happy and thankful and 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 rejoice in all that God had done for him, so much so that he had come to love God. That's the difference. See, it's like the two sons. You know, neither one of them loved the father. And then Abraham says this curious thing, which we could get tied up in, but I'm going to skip. And besides all this, between you and us, us and you, sorry, there is a great gulf fixed. That they that would pass from hence to you may not be able, and they would come, and none may cross over from thence to us. So whatever's going on here, whether this is just a a theoretical teaching by the Lord Jesus Christ, or or an actual reality of heaven and hell, and whether they're in two different compartments, well, they were, they're in heaven now. We know from what Paul said that the saved people are in heaven now, because he said to be absent from the body is to be pleasant with the Lord. He doesn't say to be absent from the body is to go wait with Abraham. See, that's what the Jews thought. But now, when we die, we go to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, our people argue, well, when Jesus died, he took captivity captive, that's out of Ephesians, and gave gifts unto men. So he gave us spiritual gifts, he emptied paradise, and they're all now in heaven. That doesn't matter to me right now. What matters is that they could see each other, and and the rich man understood what he'd lost in all of this. And he understood. He's not getting out. And he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would have sent him to my father's house. <laughs> Great. You know, I, I, it's, it's probably Lazarus is standing over there making faces at him right now. I don't know. I mean, yeah, Lazarus. And for I have five brethren, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. I've got five brothers in the Lord. Now, sitting in hell, he realizes what matters. Right? He understood what he's lost by focusing, putting all his focus on money. I bet what his brothers are doing right now is fighting over the money, don't you? They're probably in, in court right now arguing about, well, well, I, I deserve this or I deserve that. You know, it's all in probate court and it'll be years before it all gets settled. And, and all that money, all that work, that lifetime of work has done nothing but corrupt his other brothers. What a sad story that is. Send Lazarus. <laughs> like they'd recognize him, right? Send Lazarus to talk to them to my father's house. For I have five brethren that they may testify that he, Lazarus, might testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets. Well, we have the New Testament, thank God. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man says, No, no, Father. But if one of them should rise from the dead, they will repent. And then there's this little prophetic statement here. And he, that is Abraham, said unto the rich man, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, even if one rises from the dead. Remember, this is to a Pharisee that in just a couple of months is not going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. This is quite quite a parable uh, or a story that Jesus is using to teach this guy. So in the last parable, this might be a story, I don't know. The parable, we had two guys... They really didn't love the father. 
the prodigal got to a point down in the pigsty where he recognized how much the father loved him. Right? Fortunately for him, he got low enough and dirty enough and hungry enough that he recognized that if he goes home and just volunteers to be a slave, which by the way is what we do when we get saved, a slave of Jesus, that we'll be better off than any work we could ever do out here in the world. See, he's the only one that came around. And this rich guy was so full of self-will, it got in the way of his genuine ability to recognize love for God. Now the message is don't let this happen to you. Don't let your money or your house or your job or your car or your truck or your sailboat get to be so important that it gets between you and the Lord. Understand, our only hope is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together and this opportunity to look into your word. Thank you, Jesus, for setting aside your deity and coming down to explain some of these things to us. Help us, Lord Jesus, to come to you in simple faith for leadership to know, Lord, how we are to live these last days. We know that time is short. We know that we'll be in your presence in the blink of an eye. We know, Father, that our lives are far shorter now than they were before. And we pray, Father, that we would live lives that are pleasing to you and your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. So that first microphone crashed earlier, huh? That was that crash I heard. And then there was a second microphone that died. Is that correct? Because when I came up here, I heard a crash, and I thought, what is that? terrible thing I'm about to do to you today. You know, I, I meant to look up, that's what I was trying to look up there just a minute ago when we started Genesis. Does anyone remember? Obviously it was 19, at least 19 weeks ago, so it's probably closer to 30 weeks ago. Does anyone remember when we started? I meant to look that up before I closed out my computer the other day, and I, I didn't. Oh. I was going to say, John, what are you doing? But it's not John, it's Bob. Bob, what are you doing? There we go. Five, seven, there we go. Five, seven, May 7th. All right. All right. So at that rate, we'll be done with Genesis in another year. So I thought it wouldn't be a bad idea. And I put up there one through six. My original intention was to go one through 19. But as I said earlier, it turned into a bit of a nightmare. Um, just too much information. So we'll just have to see what happens uh, here. I don't even know if I can get through what I have here. Uh, but we're going farther than chapter 6, I think. Uh, Where did you touch the microphone these days? 
do if this was prayer for the Do we have any prayer requests? Mary? Um, on Wednesday this week, I don't know if any of you know Lloyd Dyke. Lloyd and Lynn attend at Valley Bible, and he had run for representative or senator a couple of years ago. And uh, she had gone out to do some things, and when she came back, he was dead in the kitchen. So prayers for Lynn Dyke over the death of her husband, Lloyd. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we uh, come before you this morning as your children. We thank you, Lord, that you are our Father. We thank you, Jesus, that you are our brother, that you paid a way for us that we can enter into the throne room of the Almighty God. Lord, we thank you for the life of Lloyd, and we would pray for his family now as he is pass from this life into your arms. Lord, we want to lift up those in our congregation who are recovering from illness and different things, those we may know. We thank you for safety, for travel, for those who will be traveling and those who are here now. Lord, I do want to lift up Bob in a continuing uh, process that you healed him. And, uh, and we would just ask for a miracle in that way. We put him in your loving hands. And we just thank you for the, the message this morning. We pray that you give the strength and that you give us the ears and that you would touch our hearts that we would go from this place, change people from your word through Bob in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Les. Hey, Les. you want to come back here and read this from Pamela? Hey, it looks like we have a prayer request um, for uh, Pam's mother who is ch being challenged for mobility and her son came down with COVID. Uh, he um, is, came down from Lindenville and we had to stay over because he got so sick. So Lord, we wanna pray also for Pam's mom and for her son, Jacob, we pray for a healing and for wholeness in their bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hi, Sandy. <laughs> She's smiling. <laughs> Thank you, Les. So I, this may be too much information, but I'm showering last night, and then I'm drying off, and I'm drying off my hair, and I thought, i got a hair in my mouth. Who's been using my towel? You know, well, actually, I loaned it to Caleb, so I thought it was Caleb. And then I thought, I did this, and I thought, oh, it's mine. <laughs> so when I went in for the... Uh, when I went in for that port installation, they got me all prepped up and they were rolling me into, out of the prep room and into the surgical room when a lady comes in, nurse or somebody comes in and says, you Bob Henley? I said, yes. Yeah. She said, you're the one causing all the trouble. I said, what did I do? So the doctor later said, well, it's probably good news because you know that the chemo's working and I guess the chemo's working. <laughs> so, 
So I'm going to be vying with the others in the church for having the least hair. So we'll see who wins this, this award, you know. So I thought it'd be a good time as we start a new year to look at uh, where we've been in the book of Genesis. And I, 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 I hate to put the word up there, theology, because I know that that turns some people off. Uh, really, I just want to talk about the main points that we've covered in the last 19 chapters. I don't even know if I'm going to continue with Genesis. I, I'm going to have to just pray about that. Uh, I have scheduled uh, Billy Jones to come in next Sunday, and I know you'll enjoy listening to him speak. Uh, I'm assuming I'll get the infusion tomorrow. I'm assuming that my count will be up to where I can. If, 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 the, uh, if the infusion can't go on for a week, I'll probably be here next Sunday and tr- attempt to put Billy off for another Sunday. So we'll just have to wait and see how that pans out. But we'll, I'm going to pray about whether we should continue in Genesis. But for now, I just want to look at the first 19 chapters. I know it says 6, but that was, uh, uh, that was uh, what do you call it, uh, wishful thinking. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, I know many people don't accept this basic truth, that God is the creator and starter of all of this. But I know most of you here in this room do believe that. Uh, Although many don't accept it, I do know this, that Jesus believed it. He accepted it. I don't know if you could say it, believed it himself. I don't think he had to believe it. I mean, in all seriousness, the Bible tells us that he was the creator, God. So he didn't have to believe it. He knew it, you know. And, And, you know, he taught it. He taught that creation was a work of God. And if he is wrong about that, believe me, we have much bigger problems in life than uh, creationism versus evolution. Uh, Because if Jesus didn't know he had created the world, we're in big trouble. Uh, But we're not in trouble because to me, I mean, I did not believe the Bible in the beginning either. I, I was raised to believe it was a collection of fables and myths. But once Jesus Christ came into my heart and my heart changed, and once I was born again, then I knew that what he believed had to be the truth because he's the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the God of the universe. And Jesus said here, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. This isn't some uh, five, five billion year or 10 billion year evolution we're talking about. Man and woman were created from the beginning for the purpose of marriage and and. Uh, procreation. Notice in this verse, Adam and Eve existed from the beginning. You know, the Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, he started with his creation. Adam and Eve came along, what, six days later, five days later. He also said, for in those days shall be affliction such as not from the beginning of the creation. Jesus clearly believed in the creation which God created unto this time, neither shall there be. Now, he's really talking about an entirely different subject. But the point is that the problems of our world, the problems of mankind began at the, shortly after the creation, as the Bible teaches. Again, not billions of years later. Uh, man's suffering started very near the beginning. You know, Luke eleven fifty, that the blood of all the prophets... And I, I underline the prophets. The yellow highlight is mine. There's no yellow print Bible. It's, it shows up well on a black screen. Well, it does show up well on a black screen. If I did red, you'd, I'd confuse you, so I'm doing yellow. The prophets. It's not just the law. Now, we're going to get into the law and the prophets. It's not just the law. It's the prophets. All right? That means the whole Bible. All right? So that the blood of all the prophets, which were from the beginning. He's not, Jesus is not teaching here the, the uh, authority of scriptures. 
uh, directly. He's teaching it indirectly. I'm using it for my own purposes to indirectly show that Jesus taught these truths that you could trust the Bible. That the, that the blood of all the prophets which were shed from the foundation of the world, from the foundation of the world, not, not billions of years after the foundation of the world, but from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias. The blood of Abel at the foundation, the blood of Zacharias, people that knew Zacharias as Jesus was telling this story. All right. Jesus placed Abel very close to the beginning of the creation. Jesus was a young earth creationist. He was actually the creator, you know. Oh. Well, moving on to Genesis, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Man did not ascend through evolution to the primary position. God was, cre God created man in that position. It isn't that we just happen to have a bigger cerebral cortex than other critters. God placed us here for that very same purpose. It is part of the creative act of God. So God created man in his own image and the image of God created him, created he him, male and female created he them. There's a sermon in that. I'm going to skip it. All right. Some say that the image of God is physical. In some way, we may physically look like God. You know, we often think when we see these, uh, what do they call Christophanies, Theophanies, times where God takes on human form. We often assume that he's taking on human form so he doesn't freak us out. But we don't really know what form God exists in. So there are those that would argue that God in some way physically looks like us. I'm not going to argue that point. I don't know. You know, I know God dwells in the light that no man can see, so nobody's really seen him, so we really don't know what his existence looks like. But there are those that would argue that in the image of God does mean uh, there is some physical likeness between himself and us. Others will argue, no, this is a moral sense that unlike the animals, we can comprehend right versus wrong. So God created us with a moral sense that we know things that are right and things that are wrong. We'll get into that in a little bit. Others say, no, he created us in a spiritual sense. He created us in a spiritual sense and that although we inhabit a physical body, our spirits are designed like God to be eternal. I believe that. You know, I, I don't think I could argue the other two points too effectively, but I can tell you that I do believe God created our spirits eternally. And there is no such thing as death. I mean, you're either going to live in heaven we're either going to live in heaven or we're going to live in hell. There's not going to be any, any, any non-existence. There's not going to be any oblivion for, for people. We're, we're like software. We, we exist with or without the hardware. And I believe that. So whether you accept the physical, moral, or spiritual, or I lean in the direction of probably all of them are in some way true or another, I don't know. It'd be interesting. To, I mean, that's what I believe. I, I just don't know, you know. Now, when we end up with chapter 1, we see that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Theologically, that says a lot, because we know the fall has not happened yet. Satan has not rebelled yet. There is no sin in the world. Therefore, everything is very good. Now, this is important because, you know, you, one of your children die, or in my case, you get cancer, or, or somebody gets hit by a truck, and you think, why would God allow this? Why did this happen? God didn't create it that way. Genesis chapter 1 teaches that point. God did not make the world flawed. He made it perfect. It was good. It was very good. It was very good. When God finished His act of creation, 
it was good. So if you want to blame somebody, you can't blame God. Oh, Adam's going to blame God in a few minutes, but we're going to skip we're going to skip that for now. He shouldn't have blamed God. You know, he's going to blame his wife, he's going to blame God, he's going to blame everybody but himself. And that type of narcissism started with Adam. It wasn't there at the end of chapter 1. See. So you get to chapter 2 and there's only one thing that's not good. Uh, and the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. It says this is a world God designed work is required. He, he, he doesn't see any need for a lazy man sitting around living for himself. Living alone, gathering money, and living for himself. That's not what God planned for humanity. You see, in this world God designed us to work right from the get-go. We were never meant to sit around doing nothing. We were expected to work in our families, in our communities, in our countries. We are supposed to, did I have it on there? Yeah, to dress it and to keep it, the Bible says. Dress it, the word dress it means to serve for the benefit. Serve for the benefit. Serve for a benefit. Whether you're benefiting the garden, you're benefiting other gardeners, you're benefiting the people that are going to eat from the garden, you're benefiting the whole world. I think it's for the benefit of the whole world. We're supposed to work for the benefit of the whole world. And the word keep it there means to guard to keep in, in, sense, in the sense of keeping it safe, to protect it or to keep it, to save it, to, to protect it from itself, if you will. So you have to dress it and keep it. That's our role in life. Whether you're a carpenter, see, or you're a gardener or you're a farmer, this is your job. You want to serve for the benefit of others and you want to guard, keep, and protect. That's what we're charged here with by the Creator, and that's why we were made, you see. There was only one commandment in those days. You didn't have to worry about ten. You know, I, I saw a Facebook post, and I don't know who posted it, but it said, you know, there are like, you know, 4,500 laws on the books, and we can't keep any of them, and until we can keep the first ten, uh, unless we can keep the first ten, we'll never be able to keep all the laws that are on the law books. It, it's interesting to me that any time they sit down to try to buy lawyers, I mean, you know, Politicians sit down and try to make a change. They just keep making new laws. They don't ever think about subtracting anything. They just keep adding laws on. No, I, I don't know if anyone brings up the point that uh, we're not keeping the ones you got on the books. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure somebody mentions it to them. You know, I remember one time we were sitting in a meeting and, uh, and we were talking about a kid who had 135 IQ, but he couldn't read. So they were talking about, all the teachers were trying to figure out how to help this kid, and one was going to get a reader for him, one was going to get a writer for him, one was going to get a, a, a program on the computer that would help interpret and read for him and write for him so he could talk and it would write and he could listen, and, and that would be fine. And they came to me and said, what do you think? I said, I think we should teach him to read. He's smarter than I am. You know, I think, well, why don't we just teach him to read? And they act like, oh, you... It's like, why don't we just do what we're supposed to do and stop trying to add stuff? You know, and that's, that's what we seem to always be doing. One rule. One rule. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not have eaten, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. It wasn't poison fruit. It was disobedience that killed him. One commandment. Couldn't even keep that one. The ten, we didn't have a chance with ten. But we learn in this, that in this world that God has created, this, this is God's world. He's the creator, he's the owner, he's the possessor of earth. And in this world, there are some things we cannot do, all right, if we're going to please God. And there are some things we should not do. So the, the, no is an acceptable answer from God. That's the point. See, 
we think it's wrong to say no to people. No is an acceptable response. God said, don't. No. Don't touch that tree. You know. Now we know it was hadn't didn't have anything to do with fruit. We don't know what kind of fruit it was, but we knew it had to do with a spirit of disobedience that decided to do his own will above God's will when he rebelled against that. Eve, yes, Eve was tempted. It wasn't called Eve's sin. It was called it is called Adam's sin. Adam sinned willfully, knowing God told him not to do it. He said, my will is more important than God's will. Now, they make all, you can make all kinds of arguments that he'd rather be with his wife than he would God and on and on and on. And in a way that people see in Adam a type of Christ who is willing to die for his bride. And, you know, that, that may be true and it makes good preaching. But the fact is he was wrong. You know, I, I'm like Chuck Missler. Chuck Missler said, Adam so said to his wife, boy, are you in trouble? You know, yeah, I don't want that thing. You're in trouble, girl. You know, God, help. You know, that's what he should have done, but he didn't. Anyway, let's go on. And the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a help meet for him. Meet appropriate, a helper that is suitable or appropriate to him. Uh, the point is God made us in pairs, male, male and female. And he intends that for the best condition of mankind and womankind is a permanent relationship in marriage. And that's how that next chapter is going to end. Jesus, again, confirms this in the New Testament. From the beginning of the... Again, he's teaching something entirely different, but that's beside the point. We're using what he's, the foundation of what he's teaching to argue points all the way back in the Old Testament. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. You become a new unit, a new family. You, 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 you break away from the old family and you become a new unit. And the twain shall become one flesh, so there are no more two but one. Wherefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Now we're all the way up to chapter 3 and you see my problem already, don't you? You know, 19 chapters ain't going to get done. <laughs> Can't happen. So we have Satan, of course. Uh, we don't know anything about the fall, why he fell. I mean, we, we speculate from Isaiah. That's not the point today. We have this 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 evil being inhabiting a serpent, and the serpent was more subtle, uh, slippery, nasty, tricky, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And we see that the first attack Satan launches on the woman, this unsuspecting woman, is to question God's word. She had no idea she should question God's word. It never crossed her mind that God would say something wrong. Uh oh, that we were all like that, huh? Uh, but Satan's tactics haven't changed at all in all these centuries. It's the same thing. I don't care where you go. If you have somebody doubting, they're going to question the word of God. That's where they're going to start every time. You know, I remember a Dr. Beeman one time saying that it doesn't matter in the Bible where you pick out, pick any spot, you deny that spot. You say, that's not, that's not God's word. Anytime you do it, you always end up denying the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, I mean, the argument is pretty simple. Jesus believed it. If Jesus believed it, then he's wrong. He's not God. If Jesus is God and he believed it, then it's true. I mean, it's, 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 it's an impossible argument to defeat. If he is the creator God of the universe, he is not wrong. But it doesn't matter where you start in the Bible. In this case, we started in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say that? You know, now Eve apparently heard it from her husband and not directly from God. We don't know that, you know. We were often told that these are just fables. 
I was taught that. Tribal stories, a mishmash of stories that people hobnob together and there's all types of inconsistencies and incongruences in it. You know, It's interesting to take someone like that and ask them to point out a few because it's almost impossible to find an inconsistency in the Bible. And this is this passage from Jesus in Matthew. Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. The prophets include the rest of the Bible. See, there are three sections. You know, you got the law, you got the prophets, and you got the histories. Jesus is saying that the entire Bible is trustworthy. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. He was, being, he was actually charged over and over with breaking the law. He never broke the law. He fulfilled the law. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle, and they're just little... Uh, Emphases. I'd say punctuation points, but they're not really punctuation. It's more like the dot on an I. Uh, a jot or a tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Next, Satan slanders God's motive for these rules. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. You know, the first thing you do when you're tempted to sin is you think, well, did God really say that? You know, and then the second question is, why is God keeping this good thing from me? We do this all the time, you know. We do, whenever we're slipping into sin, we always go through the same logic, which is amazing. We should know better than this, but we don't. For God knows that in the day you eat there, then your eyes shall be open, you shall be as God's knowing good from evil. He's, he's impugning the motives of God by saying God is trying to keep you from being your best self. Go ahead and indulge in that sin. It'll make you a better person. Go ahead and indulge in that sin. It'll enhance your married life to take on, you know, a girlfriend with your wife. Go ahead and do these things that are forbidden and it'll make you a better person. And you believe that lie until such a time as you're so entrapped in it you can't get out of it. God is always telling us God is keeping something good from us. Something to be desired. Something to make me like God. It's amazing how many people want to be like God. His lies never change because they still work. He doesn't need to change his approach. We're all so stupid we can't learn from the Bible. Enough money, enough success, enough power. If I can get just enough power, enough money in my bank account, if I can just get the right job, then I'll be in control. I'll be able to make the decisions. I'll be my own boss. I'll be able to do my own thing. I'll fill up my barn with goods. It'll be full, and I'll have need of nothing. And Jesus said, Thou fool, this day thy life shall be required of thee. We're not in control, even when we think we're in control. We think when we have it all, we'll be like God's little g, but we never will be. The trick is always the same. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, desired to make one wise. We do this all the time. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband and he did eat with her. Always the same attack. Always on the same three fronts. For This is in the New Testament, 1 John. For all that is in the world, the desires and lust is a strong word. But from the Old Testament, I mean from the King James Version, uh, it's appropriate. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. Of the world. You see that motorcycle and you think, oh, that's beautiful. I'll look so good riding down the road on that thing. People will think I'm so cool. It's going to be so great and splat right into a bus. You know. And the world is passing away and the lust, the desires thereof, but he that does the will of God, he abides forever. So as you know, in chapter 3, they took of the fruit. They both rebelled. The eyes of them both were open. They knew that they were naked. How did they know that? How did they not know that? For crying out loud, how did they not know that? Ye gads, I don't have any clothes on. What happened? 
Well, they never had an evil thought in their lives. They just didn't think about stuff like that. That's just the way things were. Then all of a sudden, they started having evil motives in their mind. They were corrupted. And they started to see how uncovered they were. And they sewed fig leaves together. See, they weren't just hiding from God. They were hiding from each other. Sin separates men from men. Mankind from mankind. Men from women. It separates us. Sin breaks us apart. They made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam hid and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Imagine that. They should have run to him. From daily walks with the Creator to hiding from each other. And worse, now hiding from the Creator. You can't blame God. We must not blame God for what's wrong with our world. It was good until Adam and Eve got involved. Now because Adam sinned, it's wholly evil. Now I love this. Adam blames God for making him naked. I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He didn't think that answer through very well, did he? He's saying, you didn't give me any clothes. You should have given me some clothes, God. And the man said, the woman that thou gavest to me. That's my favorite phrase. Anything goes wrong, it's Linda's fault. You know. She gave me of the tree and I did eat. Yeah. Yeah. That didn't work either. You know. Every day now, Adam, from going forward, every day we, you and I going forward, blame God and blame our wives. Or our wives blame God and blame our husbands. You know. And if you're not married, blame your dog. Get a parakeet, blame the parakeet. We're going to blame something. We're not going to take the blame ourselves. From now on, we have someone we can blame. But that's not godly. It's not, it's not the right way to do it. Now, hidden in this, of course, what did I do? Get out of place here? What did I do here? I thought I checked this. I'm on 19. Oh, yeah, I'm all right. I just got ahead of myself. I knew Adam, God said, because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife, has eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. Thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it thou wast taken, and dust thou art, and that dust shalt thou return. Every day of his life now, Adam can blame both God and the woman for what happened, but it's not her fault. You can go right back here to the verse before it. Because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. Now, I've often in the past made a big deal out of for thy sake. If God hadn't made life hard, if he'd have left life easy for us, we'd have all set ourselves up little kingdoms and we'd have been little gods in our own little kingdoms and we would have sin would have just completely overtaken us. We wouldn't have had to rely on God. I mean, when something goes wrong now, we pray, don't we? You get sick, we pray. Something breaks, you pray. Can't find a tool, we pray. That's the advantage of the hardship of life. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. We don't often see it that way. You know, in sorrow, intense labor, actually to help thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles. Can't find that wrench? That's a thorn or a thistle. Shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. 
In other words, these trees aren't going to produce an abundance for you like they did before. In the sweat of your face, God wanted us to work. Now we're going to work hard. You'll eat bread until you return into the ground. And even that is a blessing, really, because we don't want to live eternally in sin. See, by dying and shedding off this broken body, our spirits can now be reunited with God and we can get a new body, one that's not affected with sin. Every one of these quote-unquote curses are actually blessings. They're, they're, they're actions to counter the result of sin in our lives. It's hard to see it as a blessing sometimes, uh, but they're all blessings. Well, I'm completely lost here. Hidden in the curse of the serpent is this promise. I'm backing up, all right, because I wanted to put it later. Uh, and I will put enmity, state of warfare, between you, that's the serpent and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent now. Between thy seed, your offspring, and her seed, her offspring. It, now we're talking about a seed singular, a seed singular shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, actually the word bruise could mean to crush, it shall crush thy head. The seed of the woman will crush, destroy, utterly destroy the serpent, but you will bruise his heel. You'll crush his heel first. I've heard people allude to the nails driven in Jesus' feet. The point is, however, you know, that they actually drove those nails into his ankle bones, and, and certainly that hammer didn't do much good to his ankles. And you really see a literal fulfillment of prophecy here. Uh, the fulfillment of the crushing of the serpent's head has not happened yet. Uh, but the seed of woman, this is the promise, that the seed of the woman will overcome the seed of the serpent. I was hoping I could go through this quickly because I have a lot of scripture here. In the midst of all this uh, that is wrong, salvation is offered. And Adam heard it. You know, he didn't hear God say, don't eat of that bush. You know, that tree, stay away from that tree. He didn't hear that. But he managed to hear the promise tucked down in the curse of the serpent that the seed of the woman would overcome. That promise is the basis for him naming his wife Eve, which means the mother of life, the beginner of life. I mean, really, you could have named her death, right? This is my wife, death. She's the one that's killed all of us. You know, that'd go over big in a party. Uh, but he named her Eve because he believed the promise, because she was the mother of all living. And Adam also and his wife, all, all very just brief statements in Genesis chapter 3, have profound theological influence in our lives. And we can trace every one of these through the entire Bible. It's a fascinating study uh, to follow this through. And unto Adam and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins? Now, where did he get the skins? Well, he killed a couple of animals to get those skins. And he showed them the issues of blood atonement. And he sacrificed these animals to show what death is, but not just to show what death is, but it was a substitutionary death. Then instead of killing them physically, he killed the animals physically. He hung them up, skinned the skins off of them, scraped them down. It's a nasty job. But created clothing for them. And here's the creator God of the universe who could have just blinked an Armani suit into existence for these people, chose instead to do it what is incredibly a bloody, disgusting, hard way. But the purpose was to teach them the seriousness of sin, the pain that sin causes, the blood that atonement requires, and what it takes to have a covering. In time, we're going to talk about the covering that Jesus provides for us through his own death on the cross, see? 
But this covering was symbolic of what was to come. And from this time on, and I'll read that right at the end here. And this time on, all believers will sacrifice animals believing in the substitutionary atonement of the blood of that animal, putting off God's punishment for them. Not to mention providing a warm coat. See, now that Jesus has come, some of this Old Testament practices are fulfilled. I didn't come, Jesus said, to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He is the fulfillment of all those ten Old Testament requirements. And he, John writes in 1 John, is the propitiation. Big word just means sin payment. He is our sin payment. He's, you know, the writer of Hebrews will say he's a, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life is a down payment. It's true. We have a down payment of our eternal lives in the form of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. But Jesus is the propitiation. He's the sin payment for our sins. You know, he's, he's the one that paid for our sins. And now we don't need to offer bulls and goats. Or if you're poor, you're allowed to wring the neck of a poor little pigeon. You know, we don't have to do that. We don't have to wring pigeons' necks any longer because Jesus died for us. So while they in the Old Testament look forward... We're Genesis chapter 3. We're only three chapters into the book. And we already have blood atonement, substitutionary death, and a covering for our sins, expiation. It's really an amazing book, the book of Genesis, is it not? Now, of course, you know the story. Cain rejected God's plan. He thought his works were good enough. I've often talked about my uncle I hope he came around in the end. I, I tried to share the plan of salvation. He was dying of prostate cancer. And I tried to, tried to explain the plan of salvation. I talked about how Jesus died to pay the penalty of our sins. And by simply confessing our sins and asking him to forgive us and receiving him, you could be saved. And his response, and I know I've told you this a hundred times, it's just so lost of him. Oh, Bobby, I've lived a good life. I've been faithful to my wife, paid the bills, provided a house for my family. My fruit is good enough, Cain said. I don't need some stupid lamb. My brother raises lambs, I don't. I raise fruit and that's good enough. I'm a farmer, that's all I need to do. I can do it my own way. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock, that was a sacrifice. And of the fat thereof, that was burned on the altar. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. We don't know what the indication was. But unto Cain and his offering, he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, angry, and his countenance fell. While refusing to admit his own sin or even bring a blood offering as required, Cain believed his vegetables were good enough. So in a jealous rage, you know the story. Cain kills Abel, goes off, driven off actually, takes one of his sisters with him creates a whole new world of sinners later to become dire enemies of the people of God and are still the enemies of the people of God. The, the unbeliever is still resentful of the believer and is still very much angry and still in a rage that their works aren't good enough and are in a rage. You know, the, the, the funny thing is that, you know, you talk to people in the school and they say, oh, you're one of those goody two-shoes Christians. And we respond and say, no, no, you got it wrong. I just know I'm a sinner and need a Savior. You don't. You know, that's the response. You know, I, I know that I've fallen. But they don't see it that way. You think you're so good. You know, you're so wonderful. 
You know, you're a good Christian. I remember Bill used to say that to me all the time. You're a good Christian, you know. And I would always say, there is none good. No, not one. You know, there are no good Christians. There's no such thing as a good Christian. It's an impossibility. Oxymoron. Well, we get all the way up to Genesis chapter 6, skipping, you know, the good stuff. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Boy, is that a description of today or not? And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy the man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping things and the fowls of the air. For it repented me that I have made them. You got to love that passage. People say, God's not going to judge the world. There's, there's no judgment coming in the future. Every, everything in this book sets a legal precedent for God's actions in the future. And that's why this book of Genesis is so important. It's the foundation of all our faith. You know. God here is, declaiming, is declaring the right to destroy mankind because of their evil. And not only does he claim it, he does it. You know, I know people say, well, there isn't enough water to cover the earth. There isn't enough water to cover all the continents. Well, there's, there's not that we're aware of, at least we used to be aware of, you know. And you read in Psalms where, you know, he, after the flood, he brought the continents back up higher and he took the seas deeper. But more than that, there's enormous amounts of water still stored within the earth that science has now recently discovered. There's enough water on the earth to flood the earth again, even with the Himalayas. He could put it all underwater. People say it can't be done, but you climb up there. Not that I have. But you climb up into a mountain as high as you can climb, and that's about 400 feet for me. You find fossils up there. doesn't matter how high you go, there's fossils up there. So at one point there were fish swimming there, folks. You can't have fish fossils if you don't have fish, unless, of course, you know, God thrust the mountains up higher, which the Bible indicates he may have done. Well, God washed the world clean, started over with Noah. Noah finally gets off that boat. He's been on there, I don't know, it was almost a year, wasn't it? How many days? 300 and, 300 and some days he was on that ark. Finally lands, gets out of the boat, unloads, goes down to the bottom of the mountain that he landed on, and Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took every clean beast and every clean fowl and offered a burnt offering. I'm telling you that from the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, and sin started in chapter 3, and the solution to sin was taught in chapter 3 by God himself. And from that point on, believers built altars and offered animals in payment for their sin. Been going on all along. People say, well, that didn't start until the law. No, not true. It was encapsulated in the law. But the fact is, it started way back in the beginning with uh, Adam and Eve and Abel. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. There's none good. No, not one, Paul tells us. All have gone astray. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, while the earth remains. There's going to come a time where it doesn't remain. But while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. 
So from this point on, Genesis chapter 3, there's been a sacrifice. We're going we're gonna to enjoy the Lord's Supper today. And I, I'm going to ask Les if he'd come up. And John, do you mind doing that? And Rod, could I pick on you as well? And we're going we're gonna to share the Lord's Supper. And this is a remembrance. This is a remembrance of our sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. Just, yeah, line up over there if you will. I haven't done this in so long, I don't even remember how to do it. Distribute. Jen, where are you? You're here somewhere. Would you mind playing something quietly?
For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, Paul writes, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. This is our sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. After the same manner also he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament, the new agreement, the new contract, if you will, in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, until he comes. Now, Linda, where are you? We have a song, right? Okay. Thank you,
taken to the hospital. Bill Levy was taken to the hospital. I believe it was yesterday. Does anyone know it was yesterday? And he was pretty incapacitated, couldn't walk, was not really aware of what was going on, and they do not expect him to survive. So there's no word. They wouldn't say, you know, how long he'll exist like this. Uh, they didn't know. Uh, but uh, it doesn't sound good at all. Yeah. Do we have an update on Barb? Barb, well, Barb is... Uh, I'm, oh, they've got their camera off. I'm assuming she's home. She was going to be released yesterday. She went in Wednesday for a check, and I think they decided to balance their deficit on the Mac family. Uh, but they ran a bunch of tests, and so far everything uh, everything has been clear. So she knows. She said, "I've got enough testing for the next." I think she said 40 years, but maybe 20. You know. So they they tested everything they could find. And how are you? I'm fine. Uh, I, I failed uh, my, you remember my immune system was down so low. Was it last week? I'm losing touch here. But I feel great. Maybe it's good not to have an immune system. Uh, but I'm feeling great. Uh, but my immune system was at point, uh, 0.27 uh, because of the chemo. And uh, we that was on a Thursday. They refused to do surgery. So on Sunday, they checked it. I drove up while you guys had the covered dish supper. I drove up. They checked again. It was at 1.07, which was a 400% increase. So I'm assuming it's continuing to increase and that when I get tested again on Tuesday, I'll be good to go with chemo. That's what I'm hoping. And then I think after three, they do three rounds and then give me two and a half weeks off, three rounds, two and a half weeks off. So I think that uh, at the third infusion this week, I'm being positive, which is, I know is unusual for me, uh, but I'm being positive. And uh, the third infusion, they're going to give me a shot, I think, which is going to stop that, or at least increase that element of the white blood cell count that amounts to your immune system. So as far as I know, my, my immune system's good. My knee hurts, which makes me think that the immune system is coming back online and is telling me something's not good in my knees. He said I wouldn't feel anything. I wouldn't feel an infection. I wouldn't cough. I wouldn't sneeze. I wouldn't uh, cut. Wouldn't get red. There's no immune system. No. Supposed to have been the boy in the bubble for a couple of weeks. Yeah. yeah. So. so that's where we're at. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But Barb, Barb's doing well. Bill's not. And so far, so good with me. Linda, did you have something? And we have a prayer request for Elizabeth Curran. Yeah, she's told me this morning that she's feeling good, but she's really tired. This what I, She's on a different protocol than I am, and uh, I think it's just knocking her out. And 
I get three weeks to recover. She gets four days, five days. You know, so. Do we have any requests out here? We have a praise. There's a new uh, Grace Baptist, uh, do we dare say member? Are you born into this church? Are you born again into it? But we've, well, at least let's say we've got a new visitor. And at this point, she looks like she's sleeping with mommy very well. Joe, would you like to tell people on Zoom the, about the baby's name? No. <laughs> Esther May Audette. Esther May Audette. All right. Well, welcome, Esther. Well, welcome, Esther, and everyone else that's here this morning. I recognize a couple of you guys from the other side of the town. And uh, we want to keep Nikki in prayer. Absolutely. And Patricia and Pam Kernan and her family. Pamela's on today. Hi, Pam. And Sandy who's a little bit isolated, one of our oldest members here. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for uh, this chance to be together um, despite the weather, but we will deal with the weather as it comes. And we thank you for the good things that the snow does for Vermont. Lord, I, I do continue to lift up Pastor Bob and Elizabeth as they go through these treatments. Lord, we lift up Bill Levy um, at the moment that you would take him home in peace. We pray for the concerns that he had, that they've been taken care of. We pray for Barb and Rod, that Barb could uh, return to full health and, and this be nothing more than an expensive scare. And we pray that, that Rod would be successful in his time in getting things accomplished down there in Pennsylvania. We pray for all the others who have been traveling and for those who chose to stay home and not travel this morning. Lord, we lift up the needs in this community. Uh, we lift up the homeless. We lift up those who are behind on their, their heat and other needs that, that seem to come up this time of year, that you would meet them. Lord, I pray that you would be with us, that we would Open our ears, we would hear what you have to speak through Bob, that you would give Bob strength and the words that we need. And thank you for your word, which, as it says, will not go out and return void. Thank you for each person to be with us at this time, and especially Bob. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Les. As I was preparing for this passage today, it, it, this verse struck me. Uh, what, this is Jesus speaking. What, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? <clears throat> Lot was saved. Uh, he did a good job of hiding it. But then I've done a good job of hiding it for a good part of my life, too. And I bet you have as well. Um, he moved into Sodom to pursue the good life. He was, answer, he was interested in the well-watered plains 
and uh, feeding his flocks. He made enough money that he could move into town. He'd done very well financially. He had a home in town. He had a job in town. He said he was sat at the gate. I'm going to call him a magistrate or a mayor. I really don't know what his job was, whether he was a town father or, you know, an assemblyman. I don't know what they called him in those days. Um, But he ends up in the end, as you know the story, escaping with the clothes on his back. He loses his wife. He loses all his possessions. He loses, I believe, two daughters and two son-in-laws. And if there were any children, he loses those grandchildren. We don't know any of that. We do know he lost two sons-in-laws, and we knew that two of his daughters escaped with him. I believe there were four. We'll get to that. But two of his daughters escaped with him, but they escaped with Sodom in them, and they couldn't get away from Sodom, and he ends up losing them. And they end up creating two different tribes that warred against Israel and were ultimately destroyed by God. So he lost everything. He was saved. It kind of reminds you of that verse in 1 Corinthians 3.14. If if a man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a, war, a reward. Yeah, the verse before that is, every man's work shall be tried by fire. If our work survives, then we'll receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. I think that's a really good description of Roth, of Lot, yet so as by fire. Uh, so we're, we're really picking up where we left off the last time. I don't know when the last time was, but whenever the last time was, uh, there came two angels to Sodom at even. These are the two that uh, arrived at Abraham's house for lunch. A, uh, the Lord himself stayed behind with Abraham while these two went on towards uh, Sodom. And, and I, it's, a, it's a gross assumption to assume they walked all the way, but if my memory is correct, it's about 60 miles. So it's a pretty good walk. Um, and, and I'm not sure about that. I, I gave that information last time, and it, it left a long time ago. So somewhere along the way. I, I, I just kind of doubt if they walked all that way. I think they just probably got over the bluff and then appeared outside of Sodom. But I don't know that. Anyway, there came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat at the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold, now my lords turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and you shall rise up early and go on your ways. Lot has no idea who he's talking to. He has no idea why they're there. He just knows it's not safe outside in Sodom at night. And they said, No, we will abide in the street at night. And the Bible tells us that Lot pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him. And entered into his house, and he made them a feast, and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. So there was something about these two angels, these two men. They appeared in the form of a man. And there's something about them that drew Lot to them, and we don't know what it was. Uh, but he sees them, Lot sees them approach. Uh, perhaps he's still at the gate. Perhaps people are talking about the arrival of these two uh, handsome men. We don't know. We really There's just so much we don't know. But I don't think Lot recognized them as angels. He will in the end, and perhaps he has already. I I don't know. Abraham knew immediately because he'd seen the Lord before. But uh, he, uh, I don't have any reason to believe that Lot knew. Lot just appears to be drawn to them, and we really don't know why, except there was something about them that got his attention. Now, it, it should be, it was then and should still be today a common practice to go inside the confines of a town and put down your blanket and sleep. 
And it is still very common today, but it's not safe. People in those days would go inside the town walls where they'd be safe from robbers and thieves and animals that would do them harm. So it was considered normal. It wasn't considered, you know, low class or or some uh, negativity towards homelessness. It wasn't an issue. That's just the way it was in those days. And when you took them into your home, it was common practice to feed them. Now, a great feast, I don't know, that seems like it's a little bit over the top. So, so it's entirely possible Lot is suspecting something here, you know. But Sodom's ahead of the time. It wasn't safe in Sodom. It should have been safe in any city in that area at that time, but you weren't safe in Sodom. Uh, it wasn't safe in any city today, but it was just that bad as it is today in Sodom. Now, Lot, Lot knew they couldn't sleep safely in town. He didn't know that they knew it too. He didn't, didn't know why they were there, and it doesn't appear... I kind of believe that Abraham wrote this account because there's some details left out that make me think, I'm not sure Abraham ever saw Lot after this. I'm not sure how much Abraham knows, and that's where I'm going to end today. But what Lot doesn't know is it wasn't safe for him to bring these two men into his own home. He, he had to have thought, I've been safe here, they would be safe here. But they weren't. You know the story. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round of both old and young, all the people from every quarter, and they called unto Lot. And they said unto him, Where are the men which came into you to thee this night? Bring them out unto us, that we may know them. And Lot went out at the door unto them and shut the door after him and said, I pray you. I can, I can just hear him. He's pulling the door shut behind him and just trying to not speak too loudly. I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah condemn Israel for behaving, acting like Sodom. It has become synonymous with the worst behavior in the world. We, we had a fellow in the church here that was adamant that the sin of Sodom was the inappropriate treatment of visitors not the homosexuality. Uh, a number of us who are heterosexuals want to make a big deal about the homosexuality, but I'm sure there are, you'll hear a lot of people speaking on this subject that said that the sin of Sodom was their treatment of visitors, not just, just the homosexuality. I, I have to believe that this was the first time, at least in a very long time, that, that, that Lot said something I bet he never said something. I mean, brethren, do not so wickedly. And, and I know that that really rips them off. If you, uh, you know, if they know you're a Christian and you're in a crowd, as there's certain keywords that will tip them off, and certainly one of them is sin. You know, I can't do that. This is a sin, or it would be wrong for me to do this, or it's against God's law. Any of those key words really upsets the crowd. And, of course, you know, uh, you'll find out if you don't know that they really, Lot really upsets the crowd. And that Isaiah said, The show of their countenance doth witness against them, and to declare their sin as Sodom. This is a condemnation of Israel. 
who didn't even, they got so polluted before the carrying away into Babylon. They got so polluted with sin that they didn't even hide their sin. They performed their sins openly for everyone to see, and they took pride into it. And Isaiah says, woe unto their soul, for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. Now you can skip ahead to Romans chapter 1 and verse 32. That's, in my mind, the illustration of the decline of a nation, a decline of a people, a, a, a family of people. Uh, who knowing the judgment of God, this is the last verse in the chapter, and really, if if you want to spend some time in it, it's a fascinating chapter, Romans chapter 1. Speaking about those who have rejected God and turned away from God and refused to allow God in their lives, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. That's the end of a culture. When that culture celebrates sin and redefines it as, as okay, nothing wrong with it, and begins to punish people who stand against something that is known and hated by God, uh, that's the end of a culture. And uh, for what it's worth, Sodom was there. Israel, Sodom was there just before Sodom ceased to exist. Israel was there just before they were carried into captivity. And in my opinion, we're very, if we're not there, we're very, very close to there. You know. Now, what you need to know, you know, Lot escaped to Sodom because of the money he could make and the lifestyle he could attain. But, you know, what we need to keep in mind is, though this corrupt work, world has some enticing sides to it, it is doomed for destruction. And Sodom is a proof of that. Remember when we were back in the flood, I said God is setting precedent here legal precedent that he's showing us that this is his world and he has a right to destroy it. This is his world. And when it gets out of hand so much, I, I, I God says, reserve the right to destroy it. And, and you can't argue with that point legally because he's proved it in the flood. Precedent has been set. Now, precedent is being set at Sodom today as we study this passage, you know. And what, what's going on here certainly doesn't need any explanation because we see it every day in our own towns and our own communities. Sections of our own cities are just unprotected. And, you know, I, I've had a half a dozen people say to me, you, you don't want to go to Church Street anymore. You especially don't want to go to Church Street at night. And I always tell them I never wanted to go to Burlington. I, I, I don't like big cities. I think Middlebury's a big enough city for me. You know, um, It happened to me in Rhode Island. I was in a men's room one time, and a guy broke into my stall, and he had some ill intentions. And uh, I had a little trouble figuring out what he was planning, but it was pretty obvious by his behavior, which I will not describe. And fortunately, a, a friend of mine who was with me at the time, I was in the Navy, and I met this this gigantic Polak. Uh, is that offensive? Uh, maybe I shouldn't say that. Uh, I, I was a dumb rebel, and he was a Polak, so maybe that's an inappropriate speech. I don't know. Uh, but uh, I had Kowalski, Raymond Kowalski. He just died fairly recently of a heart attack. He was a police officer, born and raised in Rochester, and I think he was a police officer in Ithaca. But he, he realized it was taking longer in the men's room than I should take and uh, came in to see what was going on, and the guy fled at the presence of Raymond. Uh, so I've, I've always been very appreciative of that, that one Polish man, uh, Raymond Kowalski. He had a buddy called Senkowski, 
I don't remember Sankowski's first name. Sankowski was the only guy I ever knew that carried a, a, an accordion to Vietnam. And uh, we all wished he hadn't. Uh, he only knew one song, Roll Out the Barrel. And uh, we'd be sitting out at night, and I, I had a bunker, but we'd be, he'd be sitting out there in a foxhole playing Roll Out the Barrel. We'll have a barrel of fun about you. Know, people say, don't talk, you'll give your position away. And he's sitting there hacking away on his accordion. <laughs> so I wonder if somebody didn't shoot him. You know. It also happened to my friend Paul Warren. Um, Paul Warren stopped at a rest stop in North Carolina on his way home. From Mississippi, I believe, he got so tired he just fell asleep on the wheel and he woke up with a horn and a pair of headlights coming at him and he thought, oh, I gotta stop and get a rest. And he pulled into a rest stop and he didn't lock the doors. He was so tired he just laid down in his car and fell asleep. And he woke up with somebody trying to climb on top of him in his car. And he said, fortunately, he came in from my leg end and uh, he was able to just draw up his feet and kick the guy out of the car. And he said, I, I started driving and I didn't have any trouble sleeping after that. He said, I was awake all the way home, Bob. You know, yeah. And so, I mean, it happens today, but a whole town turning out, a whole town turning out just because a couple of good looking guys comes to your house for dinner. It's just almost unimaginable. Of course, you know the story this time, the, the Sodomites picked the wrong two guys. Uh, yeah, they just picked the wrong guys. And uh, even Lot, I don't think, has figured it out yet. Uh, all the politeness that they've heard from Lot all those years, you know, sitting at the gate with all his eloquence and his intellect, and the first time he tells them that what they're doing is wickedness, and they're ready to kill Lot, you know. Behold, now I have two daughters, he says, which have not known a man. By the way, just in case you're wondering, uh, I, I believe uh, God agrees with me, uh, or I hope I have the mind of God in this. That what Lot is about to do here is every bit as bad, if not worse. It's actually worse than what the men of Sodom are hoping to do to these two visitors when you consider the fact that these girls were depending on him for their safety. I mean, he was the one assigned by God the responsibility of protecting them. So while we want to, you know, I know as a heterosexual, I want to I want to blame these sodomites. But the truth is, Lot is not one quarter of an inch better than them. And in my opinion, is actually worse. Behold, now I have two daughters, which have not known a man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you. And do ye unto them as is as good in your eyes. I'm thinking the girls are saying, Dad, what are you talking about? You know. And doing as good as in your eyes, only these men do not nothing, for therefore they came, they under the shadow of my roof. Now I know they say that the culture in that time, that's the worst thing you could possibly do is have somebody injured that's visiting you. But I, I think for what it's worth, this is as bad, if not worse. And they said, that's the sodomites, stand back. And they said again, this one fellow came into sojourn, that means to stay. And he will needs to be a judge, now will they deal worse with thee than with them. And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. So much for being a leader in the town. So much for all the years that he spent serving the town. So much for his respect in the community. So much. You know, that's the way it is when you're a Christian. As long as you, uh, as long as you keep your mouth shut, everyone gets along with you. But, boy, as soon as you open your mouth, you see the hatred that they have for you. Uh, it's amazing how quickly a crowd can turn against you. Don't be surprised. Jesus said, marvel not that the world hates you. They hated me before they hated you, you know. Well, what would be the right thing to do? Have you ever thought about that? I don't know if you can bar the door. What would be the right, what would you do in that situation? 
I certainly hope you wouldn't send your two daughters out there to be abused by a mob uh, because the mob wants to abuse the two men visiting your town. What would be the right thing to do? Well, the right thing to do would have been to get out of Sodom before any of this happened. When you see a town that disgusting and that lost, get out of town. Leave while you can. We're kind of in a point now in life where there's nowhere to go. Uh, we've gotten to a point in life, you know, what, what country would we flee to? What city would we flee to? What state would we flee to? I, I don't know the answer to that because it's everywhere. Sin is everywhere now. But hopefully Lot would have gotten out of town before it came to this. I certainly would not recommend offering to sacrifice our own children in this situation. Maybe sacrifice yourself, but not your own children. I, I think perhaps if you could bar the door, bar the door. If you have a sword, get a sword and prepare to defend yourself and at least die resisting them. I think that would be the, the best choice that anyone could make. Uh, most of them didn't have shotguns in those days because the Chinese had just barely invented gunpowder or haven't quite done it yet, you know. Well, I need my clicky thing. But the men put forth their hand. Now, that's the angels, all right? They just call them men, but it's not the men. It's the angels, the messengers. Put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut the door. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. Now, Chuck Missler makes a point that I want to share with you. Chuck rightly marvels at the level of depravity that it would require for a mob, having thus been struck with blindness, this is Chuck writing, to be so evil and twisted as continue to attempt a gang rape by groping for the door. I mean, somewhere along the line, someone must have actually thought, who are those two guys? And how did they do this? And am I going to be blind forever? And why can't I see? I mean... I would think someone would say, well, someone lead me home. I've had enough of this town, you know. Well, the Bible clearly teaches that homosexuality is a sin. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to minimize it. Leviticus 20.13 says, if a man also lie with mankind as he lieth with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. And I know... I know that people that are gay are sick of hearing that verse from people like me. And I would counsel all of you to go back and read all of Leviticus 20. Because it doesn't just include homosexuality. It actually includes the whole list. Adultery, incest, fornication, bestiality, drunkenness disobedient to parents, so where you talk back to them. I mean, there's a whole list of things there in Leviticus 20 that are so abominable and forbidden by God that they carry with them a death sentence, you know. Now, Paul picks up on that, that Leviticus list when he writes this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty clear. Be not deceived, neither fornicators nor adulterers. As I read through this list, I qualify for six of them. Actually, seven if you count verse 11. I mean, I'm talking about my past before I was born again. 
Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, that's sexual sins outside of marriage, nor idolaters, that's putting something in between you and God. Uh, down there in covetousness, I certainly qualify for covetousness. And Paul will tell us that covetousness is the same as idolatry, because you want something more than you want God. Back to the list. Fornicators, sexual sins, idolaters, adulterers, that's sin inside of marriage, sexual sin inside of the marriage covenant. Fornication is sexual sins outside of the marriage covenant. Effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Most people define the effeminate as the man that wants to act like a woman. Nothing new uh, that's been around forever. And abusers of themselves with mankind, most people will define that as homosexuals. Nor thieves, I was a thief. Nor covetous, I was covetous. Nor drunkards, I used to get drunk. Nor revilers, I used to party. Nor extortioners, I don't think I ever extorted anyone unless stealing some wood from a job site is extortion, shall inherit the kingdom of God. So I'm disqualified for the kingdom of God except for verse 11, and such were some of you. I, I think, you know, we can all identify three or four things that, that really speaks well to us. And um, I, I, I certainly wouldn't want uh, someone who is, is struggling with homosexuality to think that I'm better than them. We, we all fit into this, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none good, no, not one. That's why God had to send Jesus, because none of us are good. We're all worthy of death based on our behavior prior to meeting Christ, and such were some of you. But you are washed, that's in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are sanctified, which means set aside for the master's use. You are justified, which means your trial is past. People like to say justified is just as if I've never sinned. But the truth is what it means is you're declared not guilty because of the blood of Christ. Your, your trial is over. Justification means that, that uh, our trial is past and are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When I get to heaven, the, 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 uh, well, they're not going to ask me, why are you here? But if they were to ask me, I would say the only claim I have to get into heaven is that Jesus Christ died for me. It's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We're all there, and hopefully most of us are saved. Well i got to turn the page here. And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou there any beside? Now these are the angels again. That's not the townspeople. I think they just got wearied and went home. And, and the men, the angels, that is said unto Lot, Hast thou any here? Any here? Ooh, I can't read it. Hast thou here any besides a son-in-law and the sons and thy daughters and whatsoever thou hast in the city? Bring them out of this place. Well, how did they know to ask that? They had a lot more information than they're letting on. For we will destroy this place, because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord hath sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which he married his daughters, and he said, Up! I'm amazed that Lot even stepped out the front door. I mean, I really am. I guess the place had cleared. I don't know. It's interesting. He goes to his sons-in-laws and he says, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. Probably the first time, well, if you count, do not this wicked thing is the first time. This is probably the second time he witnessed in his whole life. But, but he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-laws. Well... <clears throat> If you take this literally, as I like to, 
you can take it two ways. One, he had Lot had four daughters. Uh, two of them were married and two were still living at home, which I, I kind of think is the easiest uh, manipulation of this text. Culturally, however, they could have been betrothed. They could have been engaged. And the two sons-in-laws might not actually be living with their betrothed yet. It may be too early. The wedding hasn't happened. So he may have just gone to his quote-unquote sons-in-laws in order to warn them. I kind of doubt it. It kind of sounds to me like uh, there were four girls involved here, four daughters of Lot. Uh, but I can't argue the point either way. But I do know his witness is so out of character for him that they make fun of him. It's pretty sad. They couldn't believe he was serious. It seemed to them as one that was mocking them. Imagine that. You go wake somebody up and say, get out, get out. God's going to destroy this town. Let's go. And they just laugh at you. It's, it's really kind of sad because God is going to destroy this town. Actually, he's going to destroy all the cities of the plains. You know, I can hear him talking back. I thought you said God loved us. He would never do it. God would never do anything like that. He loves us. Yeah, he does, but there's a time when he gets sick of sin. There comes a time when the God of the universe says enough is enough, and he puts the hammer down, and the hammer's about to fall. And when the morning arose, and when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here. See, your two daughters which are here, which kind of makes me think there's two daughters which are not here. Take thy two daughters which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city and while he lingered. I, I can see me. Uh, could I go check my boat? <laughs> you know. Yeah. I, I also really, not to beat you with this four daughter theory of mine, but I kind of see the reason that Lot's wife looked back. I, you know, she was told not to look back, but I think she had family there. I think she may have even had grandchildren there. I think it would have been much harder for her to walk out of that city than it was for Lot. And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters. They had to drag them out of Sodom. God's about to burn the place down with what sounds like a, either a nuclear strike or at least a very bad volcano. And uh, they had to drag him out of the town. The Lord being merciful unto him, and they brought him forth and set him without the city. And it came to pass when they had brought them forth abroad that he, that he said, that's the angel says to Lot, Escape for your life, look not behind you, neither stay thou in all the plain, escape to the mountains, lest thou be consumed. They're planning to destroy all the cities in that lower region at the southeastern end of the Dead Sea. That, that's what God's planning to do. And Lot, <laughs> oh, not so, Lord, <laughs> not so, my Lord. Now, the word Lord there means sir. It can be translated as Lord as in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it also could just be a, a, a token of respect. Behold, now thy servant hath found grace in thy, in thy sight. No kidding. Uh, yeah, you have found grace. Shut up and run. And thou hast magnified my mercy, thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life. No mention of his family. And I cannot escape to the mountain lest some evil take me and I die. I had a guy one time, a student. I, I wish I could remember his name. 
I've used this illustration before, so some of you may remember his name, but he was from the Bronx, and his family relocated to Middlebury. And we were talking one day in class. Uh, his name will come to me in an hour and a half. Uh, and I said to him, I don't even know why we were talking about it. But we were just chatting. And I said, man, growing up in the Bronx, I'd be afraid to just walk around the Bronx. I mean, my idea of the Bronx is like Sodom, you know, or worse. And uh, he said, really? I was never afraid in the Bronx. He says, I was terrified to come to Middlebury. I said, Middlebury? You're afraid to come to Middlebury? And he said, yeah. I said, what were you afraid of? He said, bears and cows and hillbillies. And I'm thinking, really? Dude, I bet he had an eye-opening time, you know. Yeah. Lot says, oh, no, my Lord. I can't go in the mountains. There's bears up there. I could be killed. You know, so he wants to go to a city. So he wants to go to a city that will come to be known as Zoar. It just means little. Yeah, where am I here? Behold, now this city is near to flee unto, and it's a little one. <laughs> so although it's sinful and needs to be destroyed, it's not that bad. You know, you know, it's not as bad as Sodom. Let me escape thither. Is it not a little one? Just a little city. And my soul shall live. And he said unto him, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow this city for the which thou hast spoken. True essence of a city boy. He couldn't dream of living in the mountains. He's going to end up there anyway, but he just couldn't imagine it. When they get to Zoar alive and they find out that every other city of the plain has been destroyed by the god of Lot, uh, they're going to get kicked out of town anyway. They're not going to want any part of them, you know. Haste thee, escape thither for, and I highlighted this with yellow because I wanted you to see that the angel saying, I cannot do anything till thou become thither. And again, when we get to the discussion of putting all these together again, uh, as I did a couple of weeks ago, I'll be focusing on the arguments for a pre-tribulation rapture that the angel could not do anything to destroy the town until Lot was out of the city. And God did not bring to the flood until Noah was safely on the ark. And God did not destroy the world until, uh, who was the guy that was raptured out before Noah? Who? Enoch, before Enoch was raptured out. So you get this picture of the church and you get this picture of Israel being preserved through the tribulation. You know, haste, thou escape thither, for I cannot do anything until thou thither. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar, which I understand means small. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered unto Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire, which makes it sound like a volcano, a sudden explosion of a volcano from the Lord out of heaven. For, for centuries, centuries, uh, people said that this is all mythological, it's not true, that the uh, city of Sodom and Gomorrah have never been found and that archaeologists can't find it. But I understand recently they have located it and there is evidence of a violent overthrow. So uh, a, a lot of times, you know, because we haven't done the research, we think, well, you can't trust this. Scripture is not trustworthy, but I believe you'll find that recent uh, discoveries, archaeological discoveries, have actually located Sodom and Gomorrah exactly in the condition and in the location that the Bible said they were. And he, 
overthrew those cities. I think that means God. Uh, and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. But then, of course, you know this story. But, but Lot's wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Someone I was reading, I, I can't quite call, recall the name, was saying that it's like the people in Pompeii that you find now that are like petrified piles of ash as a result of uh, being encapsulated in the overthrow that that Vesuvius did when they destroyed Pompeii. And now, interestingly enough, they take uh, they drill a hole into the uh, in what looks like the ground and uh, which is the cooled off lava, and they they pour plaster molds of the people that were encapsulated in the ash. They actually have statues of these people because they were so quickly covered and destroyed. You know, whether she's a pillar of salt or salt is a reference to whatever a volcano does, I don't I don't know the answer to that. Now, there are many marks of conformity to the world, and our text reveals six. And the question is, you know, where do we fit into this? You know, <laughs> The angels didn't come to get Lot because Lot was a righteous man. I, I'm not even sure the angels came to get Lot only because Lot was saved. I think Abraham's prayer prior to this had an awful lot to do with it. You know, there's times we lose hope in praying for our lost loved ones or our worldly loved ones. And Abraham had family in Sodom. And I don't know if Abraham ever finds out who survived and who didn't survive. I don't know that. If Abraham did write these scriptures, then he at least knew of them, whether or not he ever saw them again or not. But in this passage, there are six marks of conformity to the world that Lot manifested, and it's a good test for us. I think we can test ourselves to see how conformed we are with the poison of the world. Number one is, are our goals in this life the same as the world? Ask yourself up what the world's goals are, and then ask yourself, what are my goals in life? You can compare and contrast the two, and hopefully there is a contrast between my goals and the goals of the world. Second, do we blur the lines between moral and immoral? Do we find ourselves adjusting to the immorality of the world? And the answer, of course, is yes. Every one of us is so contaminated with the world today that it's almost hard for us to say to someone, do not do this wicked thing. We almost can't make those words form in our mouth because we're so contaminated with the world. Third, are we more concerned for our status in the world than for our own family's welfare? Is my business, is my business relation, are my business relationships is my business more important to me than my family? Four, does the world respect us for our behavior, our godly behavior? Or any time we manifest godly behavior, does the world turn on us and hate us? Fifth, how hard is it for us to give up a hold on the world that we live in? Even like Lot, when our lives are at stake, how hard is it to leave it all behind? And finally, number six, illustrated in this chapter, when God is dealing with some aspect of sin in our lives, like, get out of town because I'm going to blow it up. You know, when God is dealing with some aspect of sin in our lives, do we find ourselves trying to hold on to our sin a little bit longer? It's just, it's just a little town, Lord. 
So then we switched to Abraham, and Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. That's either where he always had his morning devotions, or it's where he had this discussion with God about if ten people are saved, will you destroy Sodom? And God said, no. If there are ten righteous in the city, I won't destroy it. The answer was there was one righteous, and he was pretty worldly. And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. Now he's looking, he's, he's on the western side of the Dead Sea, north quite a bit, about a third of the way up. So he's looking to the southeast, and he can see the smoke ascending toward the land of the plain. And beheld, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as a smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. Why was Lot saved? He was saved because he was a righteous man. That's what we learned from Peter. But he was also saved because his uncle Abe had prayed for him. Don't ever give up praying for your lost loved ones or your worldly Christian loved ones, the backsliders. And he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he had overthrown the cities in the which Lot dwelt. The story's not over, but it is for today. Father, thank you for this time together and for these that have risked the storm to get out, and I pray you'll help us all to get home safely. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to just stand in your pulpit once again and share your scriptures with your people. Lord, it is my deepest hope that no one leaves this room without knowing your Son as their Savior, that if there's never been a time in their life when they've seen themselves as sinners, that they would bow their head even now and say, Lord, I need a Savior. Because of the promises that if they'll call on your name, in the name of your son Jesus, you will save them. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do we have an ending song?